Hello, and welcome to Catalyst, the Travel and Purpose podcast. Today, I'll be talking with Patrick Barrow about living and working in Kyrgyzstan. Patrick is an outdoor guide and founder of Tengri Expeditions, and lived in Kyrgyzstan for nine years working in tourism and promoting outdoor adventure. Catalyst is the online platform about social action and travel. These podcasts are a series of conversations about social impact and travel. I'm Eden Flaherty, and I'm going to be your host. Hi there, Patrick. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Eden. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for being on. So you lived in Kyrgyzstan for nine years. Can you tell us a bit about the country, about the landscape, the culture, the history? Yeah, certainly. Kyrgyzstan is a country in Central Asia. It is bordered by Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Xinjiang in western China, and Kazakhstan in the north. It's a mountainous country, so I think probably about 95% or something like that is above 1,600 metres. In the north, you've got Tian Shan Mountains. Tian Shan is the Chinese name, actually, and in English it's Celestial Mountains. And in the south, we have the Pamir. Kyrgyzstan's got a few peaks above 7,000 metres. There's lots of glaciers. It's a super dry continental climate. It's the furthest country from any oceans in the world, I believe. And that creates for like super hot summers and also super cold winters as well. Ethnically, I guess there's traditionally Kyrgyz live there. They came from Yenisei River region in Siberia. They traveled towards like Siyan and Altai Mountains. And then when the Mongols came, the Mongols pushed them south and they kind of ended up inhabiting Kyrgyzstan. Traditionally, they were, so the story goes, is blonde hair, blue eyes, and then I guess were kind of interbred with the Mongol hordes, and so now now they're Asian. Their language in Kyrgyzstan, they speak Kyrgyz, which is a Turkic-based language, so they speak a similar language in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, also in Xinjiang, and um, it's similar to Turkish, obviously, so there's quite a lot of Turkish students come from Turkey and study in Kyrgyzstan. And I guess Turks and Kyrgyz can understand each other when they're speaking their own languages quite a bit. So that's, I guess, traditionally. And then more recently, it's obviously part of the former Soviet Union. So the Soviets came in and I guess everyone speaks Russian now. It, Russian is the official language. But once you start getting outside of towns and cities, then the Russian gets increasingly poorer and you'll find most Kyrgyz speak Kyrgyz and a bit of Russian. Most ethnic Russians don't really speak much Kyrgyz, you know, a little bit here and there to be able to get by at the market or in a taxi or something like that or have a few basic conversations, but mostly Russian, I think. Cool. And, you know, as we already mentioned, you lived there for nine years. What took you there in the first place? I, I've Always been fascinated by, I guess, Russia and former Soviet Union. I initially traveled to Russia in the late 1990s. And then I was always intrigued by, I guess, what I call kind of living history, right? So coming from the West, growing up in Australia, politically, it's extremely stable. And uh, you could even use the term stagnant. And then just seeing such constant transition in those former Soviet countries was really interesting to me. So I learned to speak Russian living in Russia and then wanted to work in the outdoors in Russian-speaking environment. And Kyrgyzstan has a 
growing, developing tourism industry. And so there was lots of opportunities there to go and get involved and support and grow from there. So that's why I ended up there to start with. And, and when you landed on the ground, what was the situation like? What were you doing? So to get to Kyrgyzstan, I emailed a whole bunch of companies and I wanted to actually work. And most of the companies were, I guess, locally run. And most people said, no, we can't pay any Western wages. So we don't have any work for you, except for, I think, one company, which was the Kyrgyz Alpine Club. They said, yep, you can come and work for us. You can work as our little hut warden. So there's a there's a national park just outside Bishkek, which is the capital called Ala Archer National Park. And they have a, a hut up there at a mountaineering base camp at 3,200 metres. And my first job was managing that hut. So I think I flew in and then a couple of days later I, I was up at the hut and the role there was to, I guess, just manage people coming in, take money from people sleeping in the bunkhouse and look after the campgrounds there. So I spent a couple of summers up there. Pay was $10 a day and I think it still is, possibly. <laughs> But that was enough, you know, food and accommodation was provided and it was a great opportunity to spend some time in the mountains. And also I spent a lot of time just sitting there studying Russian and practicing Russian. So no, that was a really, really good opportunity. And probably most of my today relationships, which I have out of Kyrgyzstan, have stemmed from that initial experience. Wow, that's pretty cool. I assume you do have a lot of relationships in Kyrgyzstan now, having worked in the country for almost a decade, specifically in the developing tourism that you mentioned. What is the situation with it like now? Is it still pretty rare or has it grown in the last 10, 15 years since you've been in the country? Yeah, tourism has grown a, a massive amount. So I guess traditionally tourism in Kyrgyzstan was focused on mountaineering and there's extremely strong Russian mountaineers that coming out of Kyrgyzstan in the past and, and even today. A lot of those trips were initially run by older mountaineers. There was a few large companies who were getting probably most of the tourism business. But in the last maybe five, 10 years, there's been a whole gamut of new companies pop up and a whole lot of new operators. There's been lots of international projects going in and trying to train local guides to develop and grow tourism there's been a whole lot more i guess marketing around kyrgyzstan so a lot more people are aware of it a lot of people still don't really know much about it but it's kind of on the periphery i suppose of of mainstream advertising media and stuff like that adventure travel so, yeah, so tourism traditionally in kyrgyzstan was i guess focused around mountaineering and it has developed and grown to encompass all kinds of things such as I guess trekking, horse riding, there's a bike riding. There's a lot of independent travel. It's quite a cheap country to travel through. One of the challenges for independent travelers, I guess, is navigating the language because Russian is difficult and not a lot of people speak it. There's still a few large companies remaining, but a lot of the newer companies have been started by, I guess, new younger generation which is interesting because people who are in their, I guess, in their 20s now who are starting new companies is the kind of the first generation to live who are not born in the Soviet Union. So their take on life and their vision for the future of Kyrgyzstan, I guess, is completely different to the older generation. So there's a lot more focus nowadays on, I guess, more ethnic Kyrgyz kind of stuff, more horse riding, I suppose, with Kyrgyz guides. I understand you said there traditionally a lot of it's mountaineering, but I understand that skiing has become more popular in recent years in Kyrgyzstan as well. 
yes, yeah, skiing has become a lot more popular. Maybe in the last 10 years or so, there has been some international ski groups that have come through and set up yurt camps and stuff like that. And then a lot of local operators were doing that previously. However, the marketing and advertising that has gone into developing the Kyrgyz ski industry, coming from someone from overseas, I think has created considerable awareness. And when I say skiing, sorry, there is a whole bunch of ski resorts in Kyrgyzstan which are actually awesome, fun and super cheap. But when I'm talking about skiing, I'm talking about uh, ski touring, so backcountry ski touring. So the development of winter tourism in Kyrgyzstan has been especially powerful in that it's been able to create a whole lot of work opportunities over a season which was typically quiet for people working in the tourism industry. So there's still a lot of room for growth in that and a lot of room for movement, but it's certainly underway. Now, would you say it it makes up a considerable portion of the GDP of Kyrgyzstan or is it still quite a small industry compared to others in the country? I would say it's still a fairly small portion in terms of industry within the country. One of the largest is the, there's a gold mine just on the south shore of Lake Isikul, which is actually run by a Canadian company, but that creates probably the largest portion of the GDP. But there aren't a huge amount of other opportunities for work in Kyrgyzstan, so having the um, the development, even though it doesn't create a huge amount of money, it still creates opportunities for locals at ground level. Yeah, I mean, I guess kind of local tourism in terms of guides and guest houses and stuff is a much easier industry to break into than mining, which I assume is already kind of substantially covered by the multinationals. Yeah, that's right. I remember I used to run a guest house there and in the, probably our first year of operation, I remember looking on Airbnb or booking.com or something and there might have been 30-odd competitors. And then in the subsequent years, I think two years later, we had maybe 100-odd competitors. So the opportunity to start small businesses in Kyrgyzstan is really easy. So someone can, if they've got a spare room in their house or something like that, then they can list that on Airbnb and then all of a sudden they've got a way to generate income. Taxes and stuff are not always enforced or, or paid, so it's pretty easy to, to operate on a really low level. So there might be a huge amount of really small operators, and it seems like there's a lot, but because they're such small operators, it doesn't actually accumulate too much. And also because there's a lot of taxes and stuff which are not paid, there's probably not a lot of records of how much money is actually being generated from that. I could be wrong, but that's my impression. I understand that Kyrgyzstan is a predominantly Muslim country. How is this reflected in the local culture there? Yeah, Kyrgyzstan is predominantly Muslim. I wouldn't say it's strict. I guess the surrounding countries also Muslim and Islam struggle to get into Kyrgyzstan, I guess, for two main reasons. One, because it's such a mountainous region and people were hidden away. And so it took a long time for Islam to get into remote little corners like that. And also because the, traditionally Kyrgyz are nomadic, they were moving around. So it was much harder to congregate people to be able to spread that word. So how is Islam visible in Kyrgyzstan today? Well, in every little village, you do see a mosque in Kyrgyzstan. But Because Kyrgyzstan is part of the Silk Road, right, so ethnically and culturally it's a melting pot. So what's really interesting is that on the same street corner you might get an ethnic Kyrgyz Muslim guy standing there and you also might get a Russian girl dressed completely different, but they all kind of intermingle. 
there's ways in which Islam is kind of morphed with shamanic values and ideas. In summer, the Kyrgyz nomads go up to what they call a jilo, which is uh, high-altitude pastures. And when I say high-altitude, I mean around 3,000 metres. They'll take their yurts up and they'll manage their sheep, their herds in the mountains. And so they have a super strong relationship with nature and value, I guess, the presence of entities in nature. But at the same time, every time they kill a sheep, they face in a certain direction and they cut the throat of the sheep and bleed it out halal. So there's particular traditions like that, which have kind of morphed into their everyday practices. Yeah, like a crossover, like a really visible crossover there. Yeah, extremely visible crossover. But then they'll do other stuff like, I guess, in their smoking things. So they'll get a a branch of archer, which is a type of tree, like a fir tree. They'll smoke that and walk around kind of like incense and and bless a place. So that's also another kind of a crossover there. Interesting. Kind of shifting gears slightly. Kyrgyzstan has seen some political instability in recent years, and I understand that you were present on the street during the 2010 revolution. Can you tell me a bit about that? So, yeah, Kyrgyzstan has seen some political instability in the past. I think there was a revolution in 2005, and... Then again in 2010. So the one in 2010, it was the opposition overthrew the then government and that then government was responsible for the previous revolution. So kind of what happened was the government was, well, I guess criminal. They were stealing money. What they used to do was, um, or one of the things, they did a whole bunch of things. One of the things they used to do was sell the hydroelectricity to Uzbekistan. We would be sitting around in an apartment somewhere in Bishkek and the lights in the apartment would go out maybe midnight and stay stay off for a couple of hours. And they did that to different regions of the neighbourhood and rotated it through the city over a period of time. And that electricity, which they were meant to be giving out to the city, they were siphoning off. Other things that they did, and that example, people got quite frustrated with the then government. They started holding a few different meetings and opposition rallies and then eventually protests on the main square became violent and I was on this in the main square with a friend there April 6, 2010 and there was quite a bit of gunfire I suppose. The government put, which is actually crazy to think about it, but the government put snipers on the roof of the what they call the White House, their Parliament House, and were firing into the crowd. On some of the buildings across the road from the White House, you can still see today bullet holes from where they were. Where they were shooting so the opposition party somehow, I don't know where they got it from, but they got a tank. And uh, we went home at dark because it was getting a little bit hectic. And the next morning, the front gates of the White House had been pushed in with the tank there and the government had been overthrown. So the parliamentary building was open. There was looting going on. People were throwing things out of windows. There was smoke coming out of windows, sprinkler systems on. What was really interesting When we went out in the morning, we didn't know what we were going to come across. We just wanted to go and have a look. But there was people going into the parliament building. So we also went in. We went in with a, um, there was a grandma and a teenager who climbed in through a window with us and we walked around the parliament building. Inside there was people just rifling through offices, taking things which they felt that I guess they owned because the government had been stealing from them. They were just exploring, having a look. There was things were destroyed. There was a little bit of blood here and there. I think we saw, I saw one Russian journalist in there, but not really many others. And eventually someone rallied everybody up and said, okay, listen, everybody needs to get out. We've taken the parliament, which is awesome, but we're still going to need to use this building, so let's not trash it. But being in there 
was probably one of the closest times I've witnessed, I don't know, kind of the purest freedom that I've seen. It was kind of like teenagers in a in a house when the parents weren't there and everyone was just able to do whatever they wanted. So that was super interesting. Since then, there's been some turmoil in the last couple of years. There's often skirmishes on the borders and stuff like that. But usually that political unrest is confined to the cities and the towns. Occasionally you'll get a mob block a road or something, but only when these things are happening. So how does that relate to tourism? Well, once people are out in the mountains and away from the cities, then it usually doesn't have any effect. If you're on a trip hiking somewhere or you're in a remote camp, then it doesn't really influence anything. You might get a little bit of tension on the streets, but that would be all. Speaking of tourism and how it affects tourism, are you currently running any trips there? Well, COVID, as you know, has been extremely challenging for international group travel. We do have one trip coming up with Secret Compass. I think it's in September 2022, but constantly organizing different little projects and things like that. Yeah. Cool. Can you tell us a bit more about the trip coming up in 2022? How can people find out about that? That trip's a mountaineering trip, exploratory mountaineering. You can find out about that by going onto the website, secretcompass.com. And outside of that, you have your own organization still, Tengri Expeditions. How can people get in touch with you and that organization? Yeah, that's right. I run Tengri Expeditions and I organize different trips and work as a fixer and guide and do all kinds of different stuff. You can check that out at tengriexpeditions.com. Awesome. Okay. Thank you, Patrick, so much for joining us. This was really good talking with you. If you have your own travel and purpose stories to share and feel they'd be right for our podcast, let us know by emailing info at catalyst.cm and we'll try to get in touch for you to join us on one of our next conversations. You can find more Travel and Purpose podcasts as well as articles, videos, and more at catalyst.cm.